Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I would be remiss if I did not begin tonight by thanking Tom and Micah and Steve as well for all just stepping up at very short notice on this past Sunday. All I can tell you is watch your fish oil. That's all I can tell you. (laughs) So far in the book of Jeremiah, we have seen essentially nine undated prophecies in which God and Jeremiah have denounced Judah in particular for their sin. They have been repeatedly threatened with judgment. And there was also the offer of hope held out, as you're going to see again, that continual offer of hope if they would just turn from their evil ways, turn back to God, which, of course, they just did not do. The next three chapters form a really interesting arc. And so we're going to try to do the next three chapters in the next two weeks. Chapter 21 and chapter 22 are both prophecies very specifically against the kings of Judah. Not only the present king of Judah, Zedekiah, who was alive and reigning as Jeremiah was putting this prophecy forward, but also his immediate predecessors who were all sons and grandsons of Josiah, the last good king. In fact, it would be helpful in order to understand these two chapters, to understand the chronicles of the kings yet again. Josiah had four sons, and in 1 Chronicles 3.15, you can read about those four sons. Now, Josiah himself had been killed by Pharaoh Necho II. You can read about that in 2 Kings 23. His oldest son was a guy named Johanan or Yohanan, who's only mentioned right there in that passage. Doesn't go on to become king. The next son that he had was Jehoiakim. And then the next son he had was Zedekiah. And the next son that he had, Jehoahaz, who is often referred to as Shalom. Several of these sons who went on to become kings had two names. And so I'll try to familiarize you with some of these names. So technically, the oldest son, Yohanan, should have been the next king in line after Josiah was killed. But he was passed over, and in fact, the order of kings to come after Josiah didn't follow the birth order at all. The first one to reign after him was Josiah's fourth son, Shalom, who, as I said, has the name Jehoahaz. He only reigned for three months during 608 B.C., so that's the period of time that we're talking about. When he was taken off his throne, Jehoiakim, 
who is actually Josiah's second son, who is also called Eliakim, he reigned then for 11 years, from 608 to 597. Then Jehoiakim, the only difference between those two names is an M or an N at the end of the name. Jehoiakim is the son of Jehoiakim, so he's Josiah's grandson. He's called Jehoiakim, he's called Jeconiah, he's also called Coniah, and that's the way he's going to be referred to in uh, chapter 22 here. He only reigned three months. And then the Babylonians put Zedekiah, who is sometimes called Mataniah, they put him in place as the sort of puppet king there in Judah, and he reigned there for 11 years. Chapter 21 is the message that Jeremiah is giving to Zedekiah in particular. But then chapter 22 is going to go back and refer to each of those three previous kings that I've just mentioned. Now, the reason for this buildup of God denouncing the various kings for their evil, for the things that they did, for the way that they did not follow him the way that their father Josiah did, is to show why God is just going to cut off the lineage, the line of David from being king on the throne in Jerusalem. He's going to cut them off completely and leave them in a state of just complete abandonment and destitution, which is just an awful way for the lineage of David to wind up because chapter 23 breaks out in, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pastor, declares the Lord, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds, the kings, who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply, and I shall also raise up shepherds over them. He's going to raise up kings over them, and those kings, those shepherds will care for them, will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So the human kings have become more and more degraded, more and more sinful, more and more rebellious against God until God is finally turning them over. A couple of these kings were turned over to the Egyptian king, just like Pharaoh Necho, who killed Josiah. But then ultimately, they are turned over to Babylon. And that is the end. At the end of chapter 22, God goes so far as to say, is this man, Kaniah or Jeconiah, is he a despised or a shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they are not known? Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper and sit on the throne of David or rule again in Judah. So that's the end of the Davidic line for human beings. And then chapter 23 breaks into, but I'm going to be a king to them. I'm going to reign over them. And the declaration of Messiah, the righteous branch, for the first time breaks out in the book of Jeremiah. And then building on that, we get to chapter 31 and the promise of the new covenant and all of this language of restoration for Judah and for Israel, for all 12 tribes. Because God told Jeremiah at the beginning of his prophetic career that God was going to speak through him to tear down, to pull up, and to destroy. But that he was also going to build up, and he was also going to plant. And so you see both sides of that promise from God in the book of Jeremiah. These first nine prophetic visions have all been destruction and bloodshed, and I'm going to turn you over to your enemies. And then starting at chapter 23, you start seeing the promises of hope and restoration and regathering and reestablishment for Israel. So knowing that that is the big picture of what we're about to look at, I guess I have to ask the question, the first nine prophecies of destruction and going into Babylon, uh, did that happen? Yeah, did it happen in a spiritual sense or did it happen in a physical, real, historic sense? Physical, Physical, real, historic sense. So then can we assume that chapter 23 is likewise going to actually happen in a real, physical, historic sense? Yeah, because that's the way Jeremiah is being fulfilled all the way through. It is impossible when you get to chapter 23 and what we just read The promises of restoration, God saying, I'm going to gather them from all the places where I've scattered them. None of them are going to be missing. Is that actually going to happen? Well, it it has to. Because so far, everything in Jeremiah has come true. Physically, actually true. So I argue that the return of Christ to establish his kingdom and gather Israel and plant Israel again also has to happen, and they're going to dwell in peace and safety because of the greatness of their king. You get to the book of Revelation, and you find out that he comes back with this rod of iron, and that he smashes the nations, and they're all going to come up to Jerusalem to worship him. So it's consistent whether you're looking at Jeremiah, whether you're looking at Isaiah, really whether you're looking at any of the prophets. And whether you're looking at the New Testament prophetic visions like Revelation, it's all very consistent that God, even though he is currently in the state of punishing Israel, I think we could see that even at this moment. You turn on the news and you see God continuing to punish Israel. But they still have this promise of restoration and there's really nothing you can do to change or spiritualize or do away with the fact that God intends to regather all 12 tribes of Israel, all the people that he has scattered. He's going to plant them back in their own land. And Jesus Christ himself, the righteous branch, is going to be their king. And they're finally going to be in safety in the land that was always theirs. They're fighting about it now. There's nations lining up to go bomb Israel at this point. It is interesting that the greatest potential for World War III happens to revolve around Israel, that little landmass over there. 
And so you're really watching biblical prophetic history play out on the stage of planet Earth at this very moment. So this seems like a very timely moment to read this particular passage. So now because I've talked too much, it's going to take us even longer to get through these three chapters. But we will get as much of it done tonight and then next week, righteous branch language and denunciation for the false prophets who have predicted anything other than God's sovereign punishment, correction, and reestablishment of Israel. And there are a whole lot of those false prophets talking on the TV and on the internet right now who aren't so sure that God is going to reestablish Israel. There are people trying to wipe Israel off the map and bomb them into the sea because they refuse to believe what God has said. They are all falsely prophesying what the end of Israel is going to be. All you got to do is read your Bible and you can know what the end of Israel is going to be. Or the Bible's wrong and God's not sovereign. So I'm going to stick with the side of uh, the Bible's right and God is sovereign. And that's why the Bible's right. The word of the Lord, chapter 21, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Melchiah. That's a different Pashur than we saw last week that put Jeremiah in stocks. Sent Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Maasiah, saying, please inquire of the Lord on our behalf. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful acts that the enemy may withdraw from us. They're probably thinking about an event that we've talked about several times, that when Assyria came down on the northern tribes, the Assyrian army got right to the gates of Jerusalem, and then God drove them off. Well, that was a wonderful, miraculous work that God did. And so that's probably what's in Zedekiah's mind. He said, go talk to Jeremiah and have him go intercede for us with God. And perhaps God will yank out one of those wonderful works that he does. And maybe he'll drive away the enemy from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, you shall say to Zedekiah as follows. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall, and I shall gather them into the center of this city. So I'm going to do two things. Number one, your weapons, I'm going to turn against you. That's bad. Number two, your enemies that are at the gate, I'm going to bring them right into the center of the city. So none of this is good. They came to Jeremiah to find out some good thing. Maybe God will do one of those really good, wonderful things that he does. Jeremiah's answer is, you're about to be destroyed. Verse 5, God said, and I myself shall war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. I shall also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a great pestilence. 
And then afterwards, declares the Lord, I shall give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people, even those who survive in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, I'll give them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes, and into the hands of those who seek their lives. And he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them, nor have pity, nor compassion. And you shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. We see that phrase several times in the Bible. I put before you the way of life and the way of death. And usually God is speaking of eternal life when he says that. In this instance, he's going to say, if you want to live, go into Babylon. If you want to die, fight. Here's how he spells it out. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders, falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you, will live. And he will have his own life as his booty, as his reward. For I have set my face against this city for harm. And not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. Then say to the household of the king of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord. Administer justice every morning. And deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of the oppressor. Okay, that's the basic job of the king and none of them were doing it not since Josiah had anybody actually done that in fact God is so aware of that that he's going to mention it in the next chapter that even though Josiah did act like a king did eat and drink did have all of the trappings of kingship he nevertheless cared about people cared about justice cared to deliver the person who was being robbed by the rich person. These later kings, in building their own magnificent homes of cedar, made their own citizens build their homes for them for free, forced them into basically servitude. I mean, these were just horrible kings who used people rather than protecting people. And the directive is, O house of David, thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of the oppressor. When in fact the kings were the oppressors. You can see why God was upset with them. That my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. Behold, I am against you, O valley dweller, those who have gone out of the city who are hiding, trying to dwell in the valleys or on the rocky plains, declares the Lord. You men who say, who will come down against us or who will enter into our habitation? But I shall punish you according to the results of your deeds, declares the Lord, and I shall kindle a fire in its forest that they may devour all its environs. Okay, that's the short chapter 21. 
And it's all about Zedekiah. And it's all about the fact that Zedekiah, who at the time was the king of Judah, just like those couple of kings before him, were ruinous kings who just weren't following after the law of God. And they had their father, Josiah, as an example, and they were ignoring that example. They had the law of God. They had the prophets of God. They had the promises of God, and they would not serve according to God's standard. God lays out the standard and minister justice. Deliver people who are being robbed from the power of the oppressor. The basic job of judgment for the king, and they weren't doing it. They were oppressing the people. Therefore, God is going to wipe these people out altogether. And the only way they can stay alive is if they go outside the gate and surrender to the armies of the Chaldeans when they arrive. God says, that's the way of life. And yet people decided to stay in the city and defend the city and defend their homes. And the Babylonians surrounded the city to such a degree that the people inside ended up dying of hunger and thirst and pestilence. And then when they finally came out, they fell by the sword to the degree, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, that they were even eating their own children just to survive. And that takes us to chapter 22. Because the previous kings are not off the hook. By the way, the king just previous to Zedekiah was taken into Babylon. One of these previous kings, Shalom, who only reigned for three months, went down into Egypt and died there. And so these prophecies that we're about to read are prophecies that those ex-kings who were still alive because they had served other kingdoms, that they were never going to see Jerusalem again. They were never going to come back to their own land. And God is going to hold all four of them accountable for the state of Jerusalem at that point. Chapter 22. Are you getting a sense of how bad this is? Mm -hmm. Because it's only against the backdrop of how wicked, how terrible, how justified God is in judging them. It's only against this darkness that the righteous branch of chapter 23 comes shining through. It's just so unexpected. I mean, these people are worthy of all the judgment that God is pouring out on them. The last thing you expect by the end of chapter 23 is for God to turn around and say, so I'll do it. You didn't do it. I'll do it. And why would God do it? Because they were still his people. He still chose them. He still elected them. His everlasting love was still on them. And he had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were still going to be kept. That land belonged to them in perpetuity. And so since God had said, I will bless you kings if you just do things my way, they didn't do it. God proving that human beings could never bring about the lasting peace, the lasting promises, and the covenants that God had formed with Israel. It was going to take God himself, the righteous branch. It was going to take Messiah, God himself, coming to the planet to accomplish all of the promises and the covenants and everything that God had said he was going to do for them. Remarkable stuff played out in human history over the course of hundreds of years. Because God is a big God who's perfectly capable of using entire nations just to prove a point. So remember that when you turn on the news these days. Chapter 22. I have to stop commenting. 
but I'm not going to, but I, but I need to. Chapter 22, verse 1, there says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Does that sound familiar? It was right there at the end of chapter 21. God is restating it again. This is your job. This is what you should have been doing. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger or the orphan or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, if you'll actually do it, even though you're men, if you'll just do what I'm telling you to do, if you'll just follow the rules of what I expect a king to do, do justice and righteousness, deliver the one who's been robbed, don't mistreat or do violence to a stranger, take care of the orphan and the widow, don't shed innocent blood. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you do not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. That place, he's using the word house, specifically as a designation of the dynasty of David's family sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And he is going to leave that house a desolation if they don't do it. They haven't been doing it, but one more time, God holds out that olive branch and says, just do it. Just be the kind of kings that I intended for you to be. And then you'll be very kingly. If you'll do it, kings will come and go out of the gates of this house, sitting on David's throne, in David's place, riding in chariots and on horses. You'll, you'll be kingly. I'll give you everything. Have you not seen what I did for Solomon? Do you not know the kind of splendor I once gave David? I can do it again. Just do what I told you to do. But if you don't, if you do not obey these things, I swear by myself. Because there's nothing higher for God to swear by. There's nothing above him. So he swears on himself that this house, this lineage, this dynasty will become a desolation. For thus says the Lord, and now he's going to use the word house in a different way. Because as he continues through this description, what you need to know about the king's houses, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, is that the king's houses were all made of cedars, cedar trees that came out of Lebanon and that came out of Gilead. And in fact, in 1 Kings 7, you see the palace, the royal palace in Jerusalem, referred to as the palace of the forest of Lebanon. The forest of Lebanon was in all the linings, in all the paneling, in all the wood of these magnificent homes. And so in this section of chapter 22, God is going to refer to that house 
as Lebanon, as Gilead, those kingly homes that they built for themselves on the back of the servitude of their own citizens. Here's what he says, verse 6. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, and yet most assuredly I will make you like a wilderness, like cities which are not inhabited. For I shall set apart destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and throw them on the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and they will say to one another, Why has the Lord done thus to this great city? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God, and bowed down to other gods and served them. Now he's going to talk to Shalom in particular. Shalom is the first of those kings that I listed, the fourth son of Josiah who reigned for only three months back in 608 B.C. Starting in verse 10, do not weep for the dead or mourn for him, but weep continually for the one who goes away, for he will never return or see his native land again. For thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who has become king in the place of his father, who went forth from his place, he will never return there. But in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see his land again. As I told you, Shalom is another name for Jehoahaz. After a reign of only three months, Shalom was deposed by Pharaoh Necho. And so this prophecy appears to have happened after Shalom was taken into Egypt. Because Shalom is still alive in Egypt, the prophecy here is saying, even though you're down there and you used to be king of Judah, you're never going to come back. You're never going to see your land. You're going to die in Egypt, the very place where you've been driven. In the place where he's been led captive, there he will die and not see this land again. And then verse 13, woe to him who builds his house. Again, talking about the physical houses of the kings, the splendor that they lived in. They build their house without righteousness. Woe to him who builds his upper rooms without justice. Who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. That's what I told you earlier. He used his own citizens as servants who had to build this magnificent home for him. He says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Do you become king because you are competing in cedar? What a marvelously sarcastic thing for God to say. Because you're the king of Judah, you're making these magnificent homes full of cedar, painted red, using your own citizens as your servants in building it. And is that what you're king for? Did you become king so that you could compete in cedar? 
It's like, well, the previous king, my brother, had this home. I'm going to build a bigger one with more cedar than he had. Mine will be more significant. Is that why you became king? Now he's going to mention Josiah and say, did not your father eat and drink? Yeah, he was kingly. He dined sumptuously. He had wine to drink. He had servants. He had all that. But did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? And then it was well with him. So God's saying, if you'll just do what I said for you to do, I'll give you all the king stuff. I'll give you the palace. I'll give you the, the women. I'll give you the horses. I'll fight for you. I'll defend you. I'll give you the stuff if you'll just do righteousness the way Josiah did. You have an example in your own father. He was righteous, and he had all that stuff. He, verse 16, he pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. And then it was well with him. Is not that what it means to know me, declares Yahweh? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? You say you know me as the God of Israel, and you're supposed to obey me, and then I'll take care of you. But since you haven't obeyed, verse 17, but your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion, the exact opposite of what I expect from my kings. Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. They will not lament him, They won't say, alas, my brother, or they won't say, alas, sister. They will not lament for him. They will not say, alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's what they did with a dead donkey. They didn't give him a big send-off. They didn't have a big funeral. Nobody spoke words over him. They just dragged the carcass outside the walls of the city. Let it lay there in the valley of Hinnom with all the other stinking dead stuff. So he's going to be buried with a donkey's burial. He's just going to be dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And nobody gets to lament him. And nobody gets to weep or mourn over him. Verse 20, go up to Lebanon and cry out. And lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out also from Abarim. For all your lovers have been crushed. I spoke to you in your prosperity. But you said, I will not listen. And this has been the practice from your youth. That you have not obeyed my voice. So the wind will sweep away all your shepherds, all your kings. And all your lovers, all those cities, all those foreign kings that you made deals with, those foreign nations whose gods you adopted, all your lovers will go into captivity. Then you surely shall be ashamed and humiliated because of all your wickedness. And you who dwell in Lebanon 
nested in cedars. He's talking about their magnificent houses. You who have built these magnificent homes for yourself, who dwell in Lebanon, nested in the cedars, how you will groan when pangs come upon you, pain like a woman in childbirth. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, son of Judah, even though he were a signet ring on my right hand, a signet ring on the right hand of a king was the most significant, valuable thing that he had because by pressing that signet ring into wax, he could prove that any decree, anything within the letter, anything in the writing was the decree of the king himself. And there was only one signet ring and he had it on his right hand. And God says, even if Coniah was that valuable to me, yet I would still pull it off. I'd take that ring off and get rid of it. And I shall give you over into the hands of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hands of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. That happened after a three-month reign. Jehoiakim surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. And he was deported to Babylon where he lived out the rest of his life. God had vowed to hand Jehoiakim over to the Babylonians. He and his mother would be cast into another country. They both ended up in Babylon. That's where they both died. Jehoiakim's mother, by the way, was a woman named Nahashta. And she was the widow of King Jehoiakim. And this is exactly what God predicts. I will hurl you, verse 26, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you will die. And that's exactly what happened historically. But as for the land to which they desire to return... They're, gonna, they're the king. They want to go back to where they were king. They want to go back to Jerusalem, of course. But as for the land which they desire to return to, they will not return to it. And then God says, this king, this Jeconiah, Coniah is his nickname here. He says, what is he that I would do this to him? That I would just throw him off completely? He says, is he nothing but a despised, broken, shattered jar? That would be easy enough to get rid of. Sweep it up, toss it out. Is he just an undesirable vessel? No, he's the king of Judah, God's chosen people, ruling in the place where God chose to place his name. The God of Israel, this is his chosen descendant of David to sit on the throne. God says, that's a, that's a valuable thing. And look what I'm willing to do to him. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? And then three times God says, oh, land, land. Land. He's talking to the land of Israel, the very land that they're fighting about right now. 
That stretch of land over there in the Middle East, God speaks right to it. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. He's obviously referring not just to the, the earth and dirt and dust. He's talking to the people who live on that land, who've inherited that land, who God took out of Egypt to put on that land. But for emphasis, he says to them, oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Jerusalem. That poses a problem. And you know what the problem is? The genealogy in Matthew is going to go through Coniah. And that means Jesus can't sit on the throne of David. It's fortunate, I'll give you this clue, that Joseph's genealogy, Joseph was not the flesh and blood father of Jesus. So God could make a curse like that on the house of Coniah and at the same time leave himself an out where he could put the righteous branch on the throne of David and not deny his own word it's just it's really brilliant so that's we're going to start next week we're going to look at that and we're going to compare that to the genealogy that Luke gives us Luke gives us Mary's genealogy and it takes a different branch from the throne of David because Mary actually was his mother and so God left himself a way to both curse the lineage of David and then bless the lineage of David in the coming of the righteous branch. And in the midst of all this darkness and all these curses and all this judgment against the kings of Israel, human beings who just could not and would not do it, God says, okay, I'll do it. And boy, I like a God like that. Because he told you what to do and what to be like and how to act. And ain't none of us done it. So God said, okay, I'll do it. And he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to lead us in the paths of righteousness so that he even gets credit for the good works we were ordained to walk in so that he could save people like us despite us the same way he's going to have a king and a kingdom despite the people he made that promise to. And there are far too many people in the world, in the church world these days, saying stupid things like God is done with Israel because they rebelled, they broke his law, they denied their savior. It's all true. And God admits it's true. He says, okay, you didn't do it. I'll do it. And that's why he can continue making promises to Israel despite Israel. And that's why he's going to regather all 12 tribes and bring them back to their land so that he can keep the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the same way that God is saving you right now. That's the way God works. And I love the grace of that God. Amen. Next week, oh, happy day, the righteous branch. And that'll be a pretty good place. We're, we're, we're reaching a pretty good place for us to, 
to get ready for our Thanksgiving break as well. I, I didn't want to leave you in the place in Jeremiah where it was all darkness and dismay and God cursing and, all right, have a great holiday, y'all. Bye-bye now. We'll be back in January. Just, just mope around for a while with that hanging over your head. It's good to see all of this grand, glorious, great news from God. I'm so glad that we get to call it the good news. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.